From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Voters in Chicago fire Mayor Lori Lightfoot as the U.S. Senate prepares to vote on whether to disapprove the D.C. City Council's overhaul to its criminal code. Welcome, I'm Kyle Peterson with the Wall Street Journal. We are joined today by my colleagues, editorial board member Colin Levy and columnist Kim Strassel. Lori Lightfoot is the first Chicago mayor to lose re-election in 40 years, and the final returns don't even seem to be that close. Recall there are two candidates who will move on to an April 4th runoff, and out of the nine candidates on the ballot Tuesday, Lightfoot came in third with only about 17% of the vote as of the figures as we have them right now. Let's listen to a clip of her concession last night, and I must say, at least then, done pretty gracefully. Obviously, we didn't win the election today, but I stand here with my head held high and a heart full of gratitude. And regardless of tonight's outcome, we fought the right fights and we put this city on a better path. No doubt about it. It's been the honor of a lifetime to be mayor. There's more work to do. um, And I just want to say thank you all deeply, deeply from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Colin, what do you make of this loss by Lightfoot? And what should listeners know about these two finalists that are now moving on to a runoff in April? Yeah, I mean, honestly, Kyle, I don't think that Lori Lightfoot's loss was a huge surprise. She was dealt a tough hand by COVID for sure, but she had a lot of failures in her tenure and she was just constitutionally incapable of making peace or building any alliances. But as we've talked about before, this election was certainly about crime. And that's certainly why Lori Lightfoot lost, because she just sort of kept saying that things were getting better. But unlike other issues that you might not be able to see day to day, for people, crime is visible. You can't fool people about it into thinking that the situation is something different than what they feel when they're walking down the street. So I think that's why that really rang hollow. Listening to her concession speech just now, by the way, it does sort of give a bit of a pang because Lori Lightfoot came in as a change candidate. That's why people liked her. That's why she swept all 50 wards last time around. So this time she was the incumbent and it just felt a lot different. And what do you expect as we near this April runoff? What are the pitches that each of these two candidates are making to voters? And does one or the other of them represent a real turn in Chicago's direction? The two in the runoff now are Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis. They're two very different candidates. They're probably on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Brandon Johnson, I think he's the real story today. Everyone was expecting Paul Vallis to make it to the runoff. Brandon Johnson is the candidate of the Chicago Teachers Unions. And the fact that he advanced to the runoff in April is absolutely a testament to the power of the unions, both in terms of their ability to turn out the troops and their ability to raise just an incredible amount of money. No one knew this guy. He had no name recognition. He's the Cook County Commissioner, and now he's got a serious shot at being the next mayor of Chicago. And if he wins, by the way, he's going to owe the unions big. I mean, he's going to owe them huge, and they know that. The teachers union has their major contract coming up for renegotiation in 2024, and they really want him there because they really want to be on both sides of that negotiating table. So that's what that was all about. I'd expect their buy-in with him to get even bigger going forward. The other candidate, obviously, Paul Vallis, he definitely won this race facing the crime issue head on. And people understood that the current situation where Chicago has, I think it's a 5% arrest rate for major felonies. A lot of times police don't even chase and you've got 53% of officers that are assigned to beats and many of the other ones who aren't. It's just not the answer. So one thing I wanted to mention about Paul Vallis, though, I thought he did a very smart thing in his speech last night. 
he tried to essentially tie the crime issue and the safety issue to the Chicago schools. He said that they needed to be sort of addressed holistically and that, you know, there would be no real progress in the city until the schools become part of the public safety solution. So I think that's a good theme. Just to give listeners the numbers. So Paul Vallis was the top candidate with about 34 percent of the vote. These, again, are the returns as we have them right now. Looks like about five percent of ballots yet to be counted. And then Brandon Johnson, number two, with about 20 percent of the vote. So that leaves nearly half of voters who picked somebody else. And those top two candidates will now be trying to attract their supporters. Kim, the thing that I think that's interesting about this as a non-Chicagoan is I wonder if we may end up with another data point here in liberal city revolts. And I'll mention a couple. One was the San Francisco voters' decision to fire the progressive prosecutor Chase Bodine recently. And another was the mayoral victory in New York of Eric Adams, who was not the most progressive candidate in that mayoral race to succeed Bill de Blasio. So, Kim, that's what I have my eye on is whether this is another data point in the trend of progressive cities that eventually go too far, even for a lot of the liberal voters who live there. I agree. And I don't think we're done seeing that yet. And in some ways, maybe this is an obvious point to make. Sometimes it's worthwhile, nonetheless, stepping back and making the obvious points. But this is essentially a number of liberal cities and leaders who are simply failing the test, right? And as Colin noted, it happened to be a bigger test in the last couple of years because of COVID. But there were also other things like the riots that we saw and the arson and the destruction after what happened to George Floyd. And in moments like this, yes, they are difficult, but that is when citizens look to their leaders most to keep things under control. And instead, in places like Chicago or San Francisco or New York, you had leaders that were letting the lunatics run the asylum. Uh, Not only did you have these soaring crime rates, but all the knock-on effects as well, too, in the economy. You know, look what happened to Chicago's magnificent mind those empty storefronts there. Those are jobs that are lost. You've had a number of high-profile businesses that have very publicly exited the city and the state. And even though Lori Lightfoot was insisting that things were getting better, I mean, it's true, homicides were down slightly from their peak in 2021, but robberies are up and thefts are up and burglaries are up and people live with this every day. I think one more thing that's worth noting, just an interesting aspect of Chicago compared to other places is that in a lot of places like San Francisco, you've had city councils really neuter the power of mayors to do much at all. They kind of run everything. The mayor in Chicago still has very sweeping powers and responsibilities. And that can be good if you are a mayor, but it can be really problematic if you're not getting the job done because voters know exactly who to blame. And that is what we certainly saw here yesterday. And it seems like a hard thing to be fighting as a politician. I mean, inflation is another example of an issue that I think voters feel so viscerally that even if it's not your fault, it is hard being the person in charge when the inflation figures are going haywire. Voters are looking for somebody to hold accountable for that. And as Kim mentioned, the homicide rate in Chicago has dropped some, but this is a Reuters story on Lightfoot's loss. It says there were more than 800 murders in Chicago in 2021. The most in a quarter century, the homicide rate dropped 14% in 2022, but remained nearly 40% higher than in 2019. And so, Colin, I, I think one of my takeaways here is that progressive candidates 
are underrating the crime issue and how angry voters have gotten about what's going on in some of these cities. I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's going to be very interesting, again, on the uh, Chicago race as we watch the runoff, because Brandon Johnson has made it sort of a political goal. Defunding the police, he said at one point, was a political goal. And I think you're not going to have as much tolerance on that, especially from the Black community. You know, if you look at the turnout at the uh, results from the primary, Lori Lightfoot actually beat Brandon Johnson in Black areas. Brandon Johnson's strongest ward was one of the whiter wards in one of the most progressive areas of the city, which is sort of uh, over on the northwest side. So I think that as we go forward, addressing those crime issues is not as easy as just saying, oh, well, Paul Vallis is the you know more straight ahead police candidate. It also has to do with people's real feelings of what progressive politics means in their city writ large. Hang tight. We'll be right back. You're listening to Potomac Watch from The Wall Street Journal. ADP knows anything you hear, anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't, can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker, play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Speaking of crime in progressive cities, we should also talk about the recent action by the District of Columbia City Council. And it's a long 450-page bill overhauling the criminal code. It was vetoed by Mayor Muriel Bowser, who pointed to some of the changes, decreasing of sentence terms, for example, for some serious crimes, including some violent crimes, I believe. Here is what she said when she vetoed the bill. None of us can be satisfied with young people using weapons and killing each other. Anytime there is a policy that reduces penalties, I think it sends the wrong message. So Mayor Bowser vetoed that bill. Her veto was overridden by the city council. And now this goes to Congress. The House has passed a bill that would override, disapprove this change to the District of Columbia City Code. It's probably heading to the Senate next. And Kim, let me back up a second. Is this a federalism issue or why does Congress get a say on the local laws of D.C.? Sure. I mean, you're going to have some Democrats, by the way, as this vote comes up in the House and the Senate, say that they are voting against it because they believe that D.C. should be free to make its own rules. But that's not the deal. The deal in the Constitution is that because D.C. is the federal seat of government, that Congress has ultimate ability to step in and have a say in any laws that are passed. And that makes a lot of sense if you think about it. If you had a D.C. city council that was in some way passing laws that was impinging on the ability of the federal government to actually do its work, that would obviously be a big problem, which is something that the founders considered. And so you have this ability for Congress to step in. So you're going to have some Democrats who claim, oh, home rule, home rule, you know, they should be allowed to do what they want to do. But this is one of those situations where it does seem to make sense for Congress to have a say, given that the members of Congress are being expected to live in and around a district that is taking some pretty crazy steps when it comes to the management of its criminal code. Yeah, I would point to the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17. It gives Congress the power to exercise exclusive legislation 
over the District of Columbia. And the reason of that is that it's the seat of the federal government. That's one of the arguments against D.C. statehood is if Congress, if the federal enclave is shrunk down to, you know, a little bit of a parkland around the Capitol building, it could put the Congress and the federal government in a pretty tight situation if you had a statehood, a D.C. governor that wanted to play hardball over some issue, some dispute between Congress and the state of the District of Columbia. And so to me, this makes sense. And the way that the Constitution is written, Congress almost can't can't give up entire control of D.C. legislation to the city council. It can do this some sort of home rule where it has final veto authority, which is how it's set up now. But I don't think it could constitutionally entirely hand off that power. Coming to the politics of this, when the House voted to disapprove this legislation, there were 31 Democrats who joined Republicans to reject this change to the D.C. City Council. Notably among them was Minnesota Congressman Angie Craig, who I believe that very morning, that week, had been assaulted in her apartment's elevator. She had gone down to get some hot coffee, and a guy followed her in the elevator and attacked her. Apparently, she had some bruising. She poured the hot coffee on the attacker, and that was part of the way that she was able to escape. But Colin, it does seem to me that this vote now coming in the Senate is going to put some Senate Democrats in a tight spot because I would imagine that many of them don't agree with these changes, these lessening of penalties in the D.C. City Criminal Code. On the other hand, it would take some backbone to stand up to the progressives among them who are probably on board with it. That's for sure. Look, these issues are, of course, very present for anyone who's working in Congress, just as they are for anyone else who's living in, in D.C. I think also, you know, to address some of the merits here, Kyle, the changes in the D.C. criminal code, which included reducing mandatory minimums, those laws are very similar to what progressives have been experimenting with nationwide in a lot of different cities, as we've talked about and reducing those sorts of penalties on criminal offenses is a big deal. When you combine them with a situation where law enforcement is sort of set back on its heels, it's really a recipe for a significant surge in crime. I think it's important to note here that for all the allegiance that the left has to the idea of getting rid of mandatory minimums, that whole sort of coalition was built out of the idea, out of the narrative that the jails were filled with nonviolent drug criminals. But that's not what we're talking about here in Washington. They're talking about getting rid of mandatory minimums for violent offenses like carjacking. So to get back to what you're saying about the members, I think it's in some ways it should be easier maybe than it is to face up to these basic criminal issues that are now plaguing their cities. Let's listen to a clip of Senator Bill Haggerty, Republican, at a press conference last week explaining why he is sponsoring this legislation to disapprove the D.C. crime bill. In our nation's capital, Congress has a constitutional obligation to preserve law and order, because Americans travel here from all over the country to meet with their federal representatives. They shouldn't have to worry about their safety. The D.C. Council's bill makes our nation's capital less safe for residents, for employees, and people that would visit us here from around the country and from around the world. Under the U.S. Constitution, Congress is responsible for governing the District of Columbia. Some of that authority has been delegated to the D.C. government But Congress retains the authority to review and to take action on D.C. laws. There's a news story on Tuesday also that West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat, is planning to vote for the disapproval bill when it arrives 
on the Senate floor. So, Kim, I mean, what do you make of this? I'm starting to think that this bill is probably going to pass Congress. And then I guess it goes to President Biden's desk and the president has to make a decision. Again, I think he's in a tight political spot, make a decision about whether to veto it. It is going to pass if Manchin holds true to his word because of the math and the dynamics in the Senate right now. Under this particular voting situation, they only need a simple majority to pass this. Right now, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman is receiving inpatient care at Walter Reed. So he is out at least for the next few weeks. And we expect to see this vote come up in the next week. So if Manchin is joining the Republicans, that would likely give them their majority. And by the way, I would expect that he may not be alone. You know, Manchin is up for re-election next year, but so, for instance, is uh, John Tester out of Montana. This is going to be, you know, I think a tough bill for him to vote against as well, too. So then it goes to the White House, and that's a really open and interesting question, because while the White House has come out and expressed its support for DC to be able to make these changes on its own, it did not issue an explicit veto threat. And that, to me, is an indication that the White House knows it's in a tough spot here. You've got Republicans who very much want to make this a straightforward question of where Democrats stand on crime. I saw Mitch McConnell took to the floor the other day and he said, quote, that's the issue here, a binary choice. Should we be softer on crime, like Democrats want at the local, state, and federal levels, or should we be tougher on crime like Republicans and the American people want? And so is the White House really going to veto a bill and get pegged for being on the record as uh, wanting to reduce penalties and mandatory minimums for robberies and carjackings. That's one aspect of this bill. I think that's a tough one for them. We'll have to wait and see. But this is a moment where progressives are going to be pushing really hard for them to get on board with the broader criminal justice uh, reform. But this is a White House that in the last year in particular has been much more careful on where it positions itself on crime. The other vote to keep an eye on is the D.C. City Council also passed a bill that would allow non-citizens to vote in local elections. There are reportedly about 50,000 non-citizens who might be eligible out of a resident population of about 700,000. So that's a, a decent addition to the electorate. And there's nothing in this D.C. bill, I should say, that excludes foreign workers at embassies. So you could have staff at the Chinese embassy that are casting ballots for the mayor. That one was disapproved by the House and even more Democrats across the aisle on that one. There were 42 House Democrats who voted to disapprove that. So that, I think, now goes over to the Senate. I can't imagine that Joe Manchin is in favor of letting non-citizens vote in District of Columbia elections any more than he's in favor of lowering the penalties for carjacking. So, Colin, again, I think you may end up with that bill passing heading to President Biden's desk. And that one, I think, is an easier political call. I think that if President Biden signed that, if he didn't veto it, if he helped to block this non-citizen voting in the federal capital, I would guess that that would be a 70-30, 60-40 issue support among the American public writ large. Right. I mean, Kim mentioned that a lot of senators are up for re-election. And we might also note here that if he decides to run, President Biden is also up for re-election. So these issues and these vetoes, yeah, I mean, they make great television commercials if he votes <laughs> in a way that a lot of people 
don't like, you know, and just one more thing that I wanted to mention, Kyle, on the crime issue. Again, it's very visceral. I lived in Washington for many years and I could tell you most of the city's residents remember very well that there was a time in the 1990s when the city really felt safe or very unsafe in just a matter of blocks. And that changed and the city felt great for a while and now it's slipping back. So I'd be surprised if Washington residents are are keen on policies that continue to tip the city back in that direction. And certainly that applies to President Biden's uh, role in all of this as well. Thank you, Colin and Kim. Thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. And we will, of course, be back tomorrow with another edition of Potomac Watch.